0: This is Cinephile. Oftentimes we love discussing the Oscars and saying, what's the greatest miscarriage of justice? People love saying, all right, what should have won Best Picture that didn't? You know, ordinary People of a Raging Bull, Dances with Wolves of good Goodfellas, Pulp Fiction Losing a forest camp. Oh my goodness, Warren Beatty apparently read the wrong name. This is incredible. Man. Moonlight won ah. this Picture! Cinephile. What do you say to those critics who say, listen, Jerry Brockheimer's movies make a ton of money, but they lack the substance and quality of classic
1: cinema? No, I make movies for audiences, for popular, popular culture. Same person who likes My Dinner with Andre is not going to like Pirates of the Caribbean. They're thrilled to have Jeremy Renner with us. Is
0: there any kind of friendly competitiveness on set with you guys? Cinephile. I think uh, there's this more suit envy. The great and lovely and talented Jessica Alba is here with us in the studio. Thanks so much for coming by.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: The great Richard Lewis is joining. At what point did you find that voice? Did you realize you could channel all this pain into humor? Be the Prince of Pain.
2: I was about five hours old and I was being (laughs) put down by my family. Cinephot.
3: Does Adnan Burke look like the undercover CIA agent who saves James Bond by killing a crime boss's henchman? Smiles wide, extends his hand, and says to 007, Welcome to
0: Tangier. Cinephile, the Adnan Verk movie podcast. We can now officially replace the desk Alba fight, I think, with Margot Robbie. Thanks to her and all the guests last time. Magical, thrilling, and romantic to the core. A sensual and fantastical fairy tale with moral overtones. It's a film that plays by all the rules and none of them. Going its own way with fierce abandon. That's Kenneth Turan the veteran film critic of the Los Angeles Times. He's talking about Guillermo del Toro's new film called The Shape of Water, one of the films we'll be reviewing this time on Cinephile. Thanks, as always, for your support. Like I said, thanks to Margot Robbie. She was awesome last time promoting I, Tanya, which is one of the films we'll be reviewing this week. Also, Darkest Hour, starring Gary Oldman. He's currently the heavy frontrunner to win Best Actor at the Oscars Uh, And also Jim and Andy, which is on Netflix. I'm sure a lot of you have seen that story about uh, Jim Carrey, the documentary during the Man on the Moon film, and Molly's Game, Aaron Sorkin's directorial debut. In addition to two heavyweight guests, not only Richard Jenkins, who for years I've said is one of the best character actors going in Hollywood. He's in The Shape of Water, looking good for an Oscar nomination for Supporting Actor. And also Willem Dafoe, stud, frontrunner right now to win Supporting Actor Oscar for the Florida Project, Platoon, Last temptation of Christ, you name it. He's done a lot of great things, so looking forward to all of that. I know Dan is not as prolific as I am when it comes to movie going, but I just want to get one thing out of the way. Denzel is your favorite actor. Have you seen Roman J. Israel yet? I have not. <laughs> that movie, I see the trailer, and I was like, all right, well, clearly all the Denzel fans are in. Stan's going to be in for this. Outside chance at an Oscar nomination now fading fast. I, I had a friend of mine see it, and he said, story is so ridiculous and lame, but Denzel's great. Is that enough to get him a nomination? I said, probably not. Of course it is. He's Denzel. I'll give you the five as of now. So Oldman, Locke. He's probably going to win. Daniel Day-Lewis, Locke. These are just nominations. For you Phantom should say Thread. which
3: films these people are in. Sure, I mean, Gary Oldman Thread. playing Winston Churchill.
0: Gary Oldman, Darkest Hour. Daniel Day-Lewis for Phantom Thread. Timothy Chameley. I don't know if I'm pronouncing the young man's name. 21-year-old. That's the gay romance movie called Call Me By My Name. That's three. Four is going to be, looks like James Franco, Rick Passport's guy for the disaster artist, who is just hyping this thing everywhere. So he is definitely going to get a nomination, it looks like. And number five, it will come to me at some point. But Denzel right now is currently six. I can call it Gold Derby. While we're here, let's plug Gold Derby. So I give all my nominations when it comes to Golden Globes. Thanks to Tom O'Neill, Chris Beach, and the entire crew. I ranked number one. How shocking is that? 20 experts on Gold Derby for Golden Globes film nominations. I got 78.18% just ahead of Tom and Jack Matthews and Joyce Eng of TV Guide. Uh, So, yeah, that's good news. And the Golden Globe TV nominations, I somehow won as well. I don't know anything about TV, so I just kind of went by some of the picks. I think because I I, I knew Odenkirk would get nominated. Apparently he was a long shot. I'm like, who doesn't like Bob Odenkirk? And he's in The Post. So I think that's where I was... uh, Correct in that instance. But once again, goldderby.com. I know this is the time now for Oscar season. It is the best time for movies. People keep asking, is this going to get nominated? Is that going to get nominated? Here's a really easy way for all of you to do so. Just go to goldderby.com, click on experts picks, and then you'll find all my picks. The other one for an actor, yes, is Tom Hanks that I currently have. So Gary Oldman, Daniel Day-Lewis, Timothy Chalamet, Tom Hanks for The Post, James Franklin, disaster artist. Denzel just on the outside looking in. Roman J. Israel, maybe. Maybe he will get it done. So the first one I want to talk about is *The Shape of Water*. The two best films that I've seen so far this year are Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri*. Which, by the way, Dan saw it. Dan, sorry, give your review of this one. Now that you've seen it.
3: I I didn't love it as much as you did. Some parts were a little too much for me. I wasn't enthralled with Sam Rockwell's character. He's a he's a hard character to like. I got to be honest with you. Yeah. There were some things in that movie was just a little too much for me. It's good. Their performances. Frances McNorman, I think you said her best role since *Fargo*. That's accurate. Right. Um, I'm trying to think of what else did really. You find, did you like the dialogue? It was jarring at me,
0: biting, profane, funny. A
3: little bit, and I think you kind of undersold. If you undersold anything, it was Woody Harrelson, nice. and his whole scenario with his family really pulled at your heartstrings. Yeah, yeah. Like you felt a lot of emotions watching that movie. I will grant you that.
0: Nice, definitely a powerful film. Three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. The film that I love as well though is The Shape of Water. It is from director Guillermo del Toro. And quite frankly, it's why we go to the movies. I mean, this is a movie which is clearly made for cinephiles, and I think if you love motion pictures and you really go along with the romance, you're going to love it. Rick Passmore is also joining us here today on Cinephile. Ricky, have you seen it yet or no? Not yet. All right. Passmore, you'll definitely love it as a filmmaker as well, because... This is the, the essence of it. Passport's a guy who loves horror movies. He's made a horror film. Like If you love those kinds of uh, B-movies, so to speak, you're going to love this film. And if you just like romantic movies, you'll love this film. And if you love Sally Hawkins, then you'll love this film because it has lots of different genres to it. I'll give the plot as simply as I can because the story isn't particularly surprising. This story, you kind of know where it's going to go, and it's not all that shocking. But what is done correctly is that it's beautifully rendered by Del Toro. It's set in 1962... Uh, there's the height of the Cold War tensions with the Russians. And Sally Hawkins, who's a terrific actress, British actress. You've seen her in um, Happy Go Lucky. I don't know the American film she's done, but she's definitely one of those actors that you know. I know her in the Mike Lee films. Uh, so she plays this woman who is mute. She's not deaf, she's mute. And uh, she's a cleaning woman that works at this government operative uh, agency. Octavia Spencer is her good friend uh, who works alongside her. And they've housed this creature. And, you know, it's some alien from out of space. And Michael Shannon course one other character michael shannon play sadistic psychotic is the one who is you know making sure the creature is captured and being just brutalized there's this one scene where he just keeps shocking him and poking him and prodding because he thinks he's this this devilish creature that needs to be stopped and examined etc and most important thing they want to keep it away from the russians then you got michael stuhlberg who's always an excellent actor he was in uh, the cohen brothers a serious man and and, of course, he's a wonderful character actor, also in Boardwalk Empire. So he plays one of the guys there, but he is the well-meaning scientist who's trying to look out for the creature and trying to help the creature out. And ultimately, it ends up being a romance. That's right, a romance between this amphibian creature who is actually played by an actor, Doug Jones, the actor. Kind of like how Andy Circus is such a genius with CGI stuff. Doug Jones is also awesome. So, they, I mean, they obviously have done some CGI work, but it's nice to actually have a character in the flesh. You don't feel like it's this blue screen the entire time that Sally Hawkins had to talk to. Like, no, there's actually a person living in this creature outfit and then they fall in love. And so as I'm describing this film, I realize either you're going to go with it or you're not. If you're not, you're going to go this is just too implausible and too ridiculous. But if you do get swept up in it, you see what Del Toro has done here, which is that this story is a metaphor for accepting others and accepting outsiders and, and finding love and, and love conquers all and all the rest of it. And the, the genesis for it, he loved the creature of the Black Lagoon. Of course, an old classic movie. And he always wondered about movies like that. And this is the simplest way he said it. And this should actually be on the blurb. You know, when, when Manchester by the Sea came out last year, they had Matt Damon, like in previews, trying to sell the movie. Because they're like, how are you going to sell the movie? Well, Matt Damon produced it. He can sell it. I, If I was The Shape of Water, people, I would just get Del Toro to go on screen and do this, which he has said in interviews. On HBO, I saw this 12-minute documentary first. look. He said, my film is Beauty and the Beast if the Beast never changed. I'm like, bam! That 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 is exactly what the movie is. Because then all of a sudden you're going to get all these people. I would imagine women who love Beauty and the Beast. I'm like, yeah, it's a beautifully made love story. It's romantic and it's also funny and it's also sweet and it's impeccably cast. I mentioned sadistic Shannon. He's great. Although I will say, as much as Dan and I like him, I would like to sort, sort of see a little more range. Like I, I'm not asking him to be like. Um, Remember when Ray Fiennes was in that Jennifer Lopez romantic comedy? I think it was like Made in Manhattan. I was like, that was probably like his agent going, hey, Rafe, just, you know, you, you did the Schindler's List, you know, all the villains, just try a romantic comedy. We'll pay you 10 million bucks. Exactly. I don't want to say I want to see Michael Shannon in a romantic comedy, but I wouldn't mind, like if Michael Shannon was in like a Judd Apatow comedy, I think let might be something different. Just I, I, I've seen a lot of psychotic, sadistic Michael Shannon. I know where his character's going the minute he comes on screen, but he's fabulous once again. He's got... He's got some physical ailments with his fingers that are just absolutely gruesome. One thing about Del Toro, and a guy like Passmore will appreciate this, like he loves his monster movies, so he's not going to shy away from the blood and gore. So even as I mentioned this enchanting fable, Beauty and the Beast, it's still violent and bloody and gory because that's what monster movies are supposed to be, and he's not going to shy away from that. I mentioned Sally Hawkins. She's fabulous. It's going to be a, a two-horse race between her and Frances McDormand for Best Actress because her character is just filled with... Uh, you know, it's such a poignant performance. You just feel for this woman. You know, she's just this mute, cleaning lady, and all of a sudden she finally finds love. Like, she's the type of person that's always ostracized and ignored and so fine. It's this creature who's this amphibian who needs to be in water. Great. As long as she finds love, that's all that matters.
3: When is the last time someone won Best Actor Actress without saying a word in the film?
0: I think Holly Hunter for The Piano? If that's correct. I, I don't I mean, know the answer. I'm just asking. Again. Yeah, if that's correct, I, that's that would be my guess off the top. I would say 93 The Piano. When she played uh, Holly Hunter. But, um, yeah, you're right. To do the entire role without without, uh, speaking, obviously, is a real talent to her. And I haven't even mentioned our guest today. Richard Jenkins is excellent. Anytime Richard Jenkins is in a movie, Dan knows I love a guy who gives you you some good decency and compassion. Much like Mark Rylance in uh, Dunkirk, Richard Jenkins really is the audience for the movie. Because he's the one who's going to help Sally and somehow, you know, free this creature from these evil clutches. The Shape of Water is a beautiful film. Like I said, it's going to be polarizing. Some people are going to hate it, but I absolutely loved it. I thought it was a beautiful film, very memorable. Love the trailer. Love the music. Alexander Desplot definitely going to get nominated. He might win. Right now, two-horse race, he and Hans Zimmer for Dunkirk. But I I love the movie The Shape of Water. In fact, the screener that I got um, from the publishers who hooked me up, I just said, seriously... I want to go buy the soundtracks because we might have some extra soundtracks available. So that's all I'm excited for. All I want for Christmas is the soundtrack to The Shape of Water. I'm giving it four Maple Leafs. It's one of the best movies of the year. And I'd like to go back now. You know, Del Toro, I don't believe he's ever. Been, he's definitely never won a Best Director. I don't believe he's ever been nominated. Pan's Labyrinth is, is his most famous film prior to this one. I'd love to go back and see that again. My cousin's eye was telling me because that's a, actually a metaphor for child abuse, which I don't even think I realized when I watched Pan's Labyrinth. So, He's a terrific director and it's an excellent film. Go check it out. Second film is I Tanya. I don't want to say too much about it because we had Marco Robbie on the podcast last time. Please listen to Cinephile the previous one, but here's the bare bones of it. It is uh, the rather audacious story of Tanya Harding and how she was this white trash figure skater with this abusive mom, the mom from hell, who is played impeccably by Allison Janney. You can hear the chuckle in my voice because, as Margot said to us, it's like laughing in church. It's not right, and you can't help it. And that's a lot of the scenes of Allison Janney. And it's a real challenge for Craig Gillespie, the director. How do you show scenes literally of parental abuse and spousal abuse, and then on a dime, like 10 seconds later, you're supposed to be laughing at some outrageous stunt? And he said that was the biggest challenge with it. The two major challenges, one was the shoot itself. Dan, take a guess. How many, how many days do most movies, how long does it take to shoot a film? I'd say three, four months. Yeah, so generally that is correct. At minimum, you're going 60 days. Generally, three months, 90 days on location. If it's a big, big movie, sure, four months. And then, of course, post-production. I, Tanya, was shot in 29 days. Like it is stunning on an $11 million budget. Margot Robbie said there were scenes where they had to play teenagers in the morning. They play 20-somethings in the afternoon, and then at night they'd be in their 40s. Like, forget about, hey, let's take our time with the lighting and makeup and just nail the scene. No, no, we don't have the time. We've got to keep going, keep going, keep going. And I think that feverish rush of the pace of the shoot comes across in the movie, which has this real vibrant energy to it, and that really kind of propels you along the story. As I mentioned in the interview with Margot, Playlist, which uh, an excellent film critic, immediately nailed the fact it's got a lot of Goodfellas in it, uh, especially just not not, not necessarily (laughs) obviously the subject matter, but just stylistically it feels a lot like Goodfellas, the constant moving camera. Uh, the musical choices, it's all the music from the 80s. That kind of pushes along the movie. It's very pulsating. Because, I mean, after all, it is figure skating. I mean, you think of uh, Swan Lake. Nobody's going to be into that. So this movie gives you some 80s music, some propulsive beats. You see the uh, the vigorous nature of figure skating and go from there. So I think Margot's going to get nominated for Best Actress. I hope she does. I thought she did an excellent job. As I said during the interview, I wasn't sure she could nail the character because you think Tanya Harding, you think short, mousy, white trash. You think of Margot Robbie, you know, gorgeous Australian. But I thought she really... Uh, convincingly played the role in the scenes with her and Alison Janney are excellent. Sebastian Stan plays Galuli. How many names could you say? That if you just say Galuli, everyone's like, oh, is that the Tanya Harding husband guy? I'm like, yeah, it's a Cato Kalin. Like, yeah, Galuli, who's played by this guy named Sebastian Stan, who's very good in the movie. Creepy, difficult, as you'd expect a Galuli to be. And just the backstory to it, when the writer met with both of them, he met with Galuli and Tanya Harding. I had them for five hours each. Tell me your life story. And he said afterwards, they both had completely different stories. Every single instant in their lives were different. So he said, how do I adapt this motion picture? And what he did was, he did what he does in the movie, which is breaking the fourth wall. Actors are looking at the camera saying, no, that never happened. Don't believe Tanya. This is the truth. Faux documentary style. And you've got two characters. So both are unreliable narrators. I uh, try to tell the story what happened. So props to Craig Gillespie. I'll give it three and a half Maple Leafs. I think it loses a little bit of steam towards the end. But I do love the performances, and I hope people check it out. And it's a real triumph, I think, for all involved. The third film to review is Darkest Hour, starring Gary Oldman, in a role in which I think he is destined to win Best Actor, one of Ben Lyons' favorites, long been a very good actor. And now I think he's finally going to get not only an Oscar nomination, which he also is nominated for Tinker Taylor's Soldier Spy, but now he's actually going to win playing Winston Churchill. And the first thing you notice about him is that he really does disappear into the role. You cannot tell for a second that it's Gary Oldman. And he said, you know, at this age, I'm in my 50s and 60s because I didn't want to put on 50 or 60 pounds. I mean, that's just very dangerous in terms of, you know, it's very deleterious. Uh, so he said instead, I just chose to wear a fat suit. And he said the director, Joe Wright, was actually a pretty good director. He did Atonement. Didn't get nominated for it, but Atonement's got this great tracking shot in it. And he's very good with British war stories. He said Joe never actually got to see Gary because he goes, whenever I was there, they'd they'd have two people working on me and all the prosthetics and all the makeup. He goes, by the end of it, Joe's like, I just knew you as Churchill. That's what you looked like. And I think there's going to be a lot of comparisons to The Crown, which I know is a a show people love. I've not seen it. Uh, But John Lithgow, I believe, won an Emmy for it. Apparently, he's amazing as Churchill. So I think much like um, what we talked about previously with Woody Harrelson and LBJ, the Brian Cranston, a companion piece, I'm sure if you've seen The Crown, this will just be another companion piece. Here's another guy playing Winston Churchill. Uh, but Oldman is very convincing as the, as the role. The, the, the drawback it is again, kind of the shape of water in that there's no surprises in the story. If you know U.S. history or, or excuse me, British history, world history, you, you're aware of these stories. But really, this is a, um, a testament to the power of language and the power of the written word. And in that, it shares similarities with the King's speech. You know, they've got pages and pages of dialogue. Joe Wright said they've got scenes where, like, it would take a week to shoot. And it's just, it's a, quite frankly, it's a bunch of old white guys uh, debating what to do about Hitler. Like, how do you make that cinematic? How do you make that interesting? It's just eight people arguing. Okay, you're Neville Chamberlain. You're Churchill. You're opposed to this. You think we should surrender. How do you make that cinematic? I mean, that's great for a play. But how do you make Darkest Hour sing? And credit to Joe Wright, he's got some good visual flourishes. There are well-motivated camera work. He's very inventive. He goes with a lot of high-angle shots to try to give things energy rather than just rely on Oldman's performance, which is great. He's ripping in all the dialogue, and Churchill was this – you know Churchill was like this carnivorous character when you're watching. he's always eating, he's always drinking, he's always smoking his pipes, so like he he's a character kind of reminded me of like a Falstaff in Shakespeare, like one of these just big larger than life characters that you love being around and clearly is charismatic, but you probably can't get it of his own way and one of the best scenes he's talking all the other characters, and he says, you know uh, temperance was not something that we had in our family like just a, I am by nature a voluble character, I'm somebody who can be." Difficult. I can be irrational. He's not a very good family man. His wife uh, in the movies played by uh, Kristen Scott, I think is her name. I always forget her name. Kristen Scott Thomas. Um, and she kind of says, listen, we knew when we got married that you were just going to belong to public service and not to me and the kids. And that's the way it is. And, and we understand that. So they don't delve too much into his personal life. It really does just focus on that month or so when the English were really struggling. And, of course, they mentioned Dunkirk. So it's nice if you've seen Dunkirk, you see the mentions of it and how Churchill had to plan try to get the civilian boats there and save them. So the, the drawback to the film, I'm giving it three Maple Leafs. The drawback is it just feels like a BBC-type biopic. At times it just feels like a, a BBC movie of the week. And That doesn't necessarily mean it's a criticism. It just feels like a, a solid, you know, straightforward account of what's happening with regards to British war history. I just don't find that necessarily captivating, start to finish. But for the performances, for the script, I'm recommending Darkest Hour. I'm giving it three Maple Leafs. Go ahead, Dave.
3: When you say it feels like a BBC biopic of the week and you say it isn't a criticism, it is a criticism.
0: But You know what I mean by that? Like The BBC does a good job with their movies. I'm just thinking in a feature film, I'm not looking for that.
3: Yeah, but if you said it does, an American a- movie that feels like a Lifetime movie of the week, it'd be a criticism.
0: Yeah, but I don't think Lifetime's the same as BBC.
3: All right, it's a PBS documentary.
0: Yeah, Ken Burns does some great things for PBS. Criticism. I suppose. I'm just saying in terms of what you're feeling, it doesn't feel to me this grand statement. It feels like maybe, maybe it plays better on the smaller screen. Okay. <laughs> Darkest Hour. I'm giving it three Maple Leafs. We're going to now listen to Willem Dafoe, one of the best actors for a long time. And then we're going to hear from Richard Jenkins, a little bit later on of The Shape of Water. And a couple of more reviews for you as well. Jim and Andy and Molly's Game from Aaron Sorkin. But first, Willem Dafoe. He has been a terrific actor for so many years, and now he is the frontrunner for Best Supporting Actor Oscar. He's fresh off a Golden Globe nomination. The film is called The Florida Project, and his name is Willem Dafoe. Willem, thanks so much for coming on Cinephile today.
2: Sure, my pleasure.
0: The Florida Project is a really unique film, and it focuses on these kids who are obviously impoverished and just trying to make do with what they can. And you are, you know, the adult and this paternal figure. What was the appeal for you with this film, being, uh, dare I say, the, the biggest adult in the room and yeah. looking yeah. after everybody?
1: Well,
2: uh I think uh, initially it was uh, uh I was interested in uh Sean Baker's work. I had seen his other films and um I thought he was a, a he, he is an interesting filmmaker. And then when I read the script, it was very strong. It was a world that I didn't really know. Um and I wanted to enter that world. And the character also was interesting and it was a character that I probably didn't know exactly what it was until I started doing it, but I know that he was placed in the story in a very interesting way. He was sort of the connecting pieces, and uh, it was also a character that had to wear lots of different hats. So there was a, there was a lot of uh, uh, different ways to approach the character.
0: Yeah, a friend of mine said that I love the fact your character is always fixing something. And how it's a metaphor yeah. for the way he's trying to repair these. These broken lives, and what I loved about your performance is that you know the character is heroic, but but heroic people are not overtly heroic. You know what I mean? Like you're this paternal character who's just looking out for everybody, and you're just trying to to make do as best as you can. And that that is where you often find heroism is just a, when working class Americans who are just trying to do their job as best they can and help people in need.
2: You said it. I, I mean, you expressed it better than I can. <laughs> um, I think that's very true. I mean, he's. He's not an extraordinary person, and really all in the in the respect that he doesn't have extraordinary talents or uh or at least that we know of, but he's a good man and he he's got a kind of uh, uh good heartedness uh he's he is trying to fix things not out of a self conscious um altruism but just a kind of practical he wants to watch the ball game he wants everybody to be happy he wants peace.
0: Yeah, I love that scene where, um, the, we don't know for certain if he's a pedophile, but he's this guy who's who's lurking around the kids, and your character right. very cleverly and adroitly says, Oh, what are you doing? I oh, need a drink. Oh, why don't you drink right. that tea? You know, it's a hot day. Tell me about that scene, because I love the way your character almost kind of soft-shoes that, right? You, you're nice and charming, and then bam, you snap on the guy.
2: Right. Um, you know, we're working from a very strong script, but that was a case of we had some vamping to do, simply because of the practical reason that, where I encounter this guy, it's quite far away from the logical place that a soda machine is. But it's very important for me to get him to the soda machine. And if you <laughs> haven't seen the movie, it's a little hard to explain. But, sure. So we had to vamp and I had to kind of manipulate him or, or find a way to get him to that soda machine. So it was a very concrete improvisation. And uh, then at a certain point when I'm convinced he's there for what I think he's there for, I lower the bump. So it has a kind of uh, drama to it uh, that uh, was fun to play.
0: The kid performances are all excellent. Um, Did you... I mean, you know, the one thing I was struck by is just how vulgar some of these kids are. Like, I get that. Listen, right? At that age, sure, maybe people are saying things I didn't say when I was a kid. And I completely recognize it's it's tough, impoverished conditions. But were you ever kind of taken aback by some of the material that Sean was putting in the film, the way this mother and daughter's relationship exists?
2: Um. Yes and no. I mean, I think it's uh, certainly the Mooney character. Yeah. She's six years old, but she's she's seen a lot of things, you know? Mm-hmm. So she's growing up fast. And uh Her mother is a bit of a girl child herself. They're more like sisters than mother and daughter. Um, So I didn't find it that unusual. I know that uh, the parents uh, struggled sometimes with some of the swearing and and some of the attitudes of the kid. But it was certainly, um, look, uh, kids, kids search the Internet. They're looking at all kinds of things and they're hearing all kinds of things. I mean, it's not like uh, when you and I were growing up. No
0: question. We're talking with Willem Dafoe. His new film is called The Florida Project. I encourage everyone to go check it out. My wife and I had a debate, Willem, about, I don't want to give it away, but just the ending. Do you think that is uh, metaphorical or is that literal, what happens?
2: You know what? You can have the debate because I I think the beauty of the ending is it's open-ended. And that's not... That's not out of cowardness. It's uh, cowardness. It's uh, out of generosity because I think Sean very shrewdly lets the audience participate. It really depends how you feel about the characters and what you want to happen. So he doesn't sugarcoat it, but at the same time, he doesn't uh, end it on a downer note. He ends it on sort of a, a, a mag- you you go into a different um, world. And uh, it's really up to the individual audience member to interpret where he thinks Mooney and his mother will end up. Yeah, I, love the, mother.
0: Fact, I love the fact that Sean is shining a light, like you said, on people we don't often focus on. We've all uh, been to Disney yeah. World or know all about the, Orla- uh, the Magic Kingdom, but here's also what's happening in Orlando. And that really is um, a big part of the film. Platoon, yes. Platoon is one of my favorite movies. Um, uh-huh. I, I mean, we can go in so many different directions, but what memories do you have of that iconic film with Oliver Stone back in 1986 and your character oh, of Elias?
2: It's a while ago, but I remember it very well. It was a great experience. Um, you know, when I met Oliver, he was unlike anyone that I'd knew, ever met in the film business, um, and he had a story to tell, and it was a very personal story, and it took a bunch of us, some of us quite green, most of us, some of them some of the actors it was their first film that they made you cart us to the Phili- uh, uh, Philippines and uh you get some uh, uh vets to uh, train us in a serious way and we apply ourselves to his story and it was uh it was uh, it was a great experience and uh all of us really for the whole cast it was quite um bonding and quite it was personal to everyone
0: Yeah, people have often said, you know, in some ways comedy is harder than drama. And then if you go further, you say uh, to play the hero is oftentimes harder than the villain. And not to take away from Tom Berenger, who is fabulous as uh, Barnes or that whole scene where, you know, this is reality. I am reality. It's wonderful. But I think your character is tough because how do you play the good guy? How do you play this character who is... Uh, looking out for Charlie Sheen and, and trying to be genuine how do, how do you play a guy who is the good guy, ostensibly in this film which is set in the jungle where there's so much uh so much pain and so much violence
2: Oh you know it's the truth is that it's it parallels something in the uh, Florida project. I had very concrete things to do, and when you have concrete concrete things to accomplish in terms of action in terms of doing things uh, it's easier to apply yourself to the scenes and you don't think about whether you're the hero or the villain um, so i i wasn't conscious of that i was playing the scenes i was trying to be a soldier i was trying to take care of uh uh charlie i uh, it, it's good old fashioned pretending um but i will say uh, you know my character in that had a beautiful setup just uh dramatically uh, how he's uh, how he ends particularly and how he gets set up it's a very it's structured uh it's a character that's structured beautifully yeah um tom berenger that's a performance of a lifetime i mean uh he goes deep uh, he taps into uh, a scary uh anger and a sta- scary disappointment that um really just jumps off the screen uh I haven't seen it in a while, but the last time I saw it, that was the performance that really wowed me. In the way
0: that your character smiles when he sees Barnes, and then realizes, "Oh no, oh, no. Yeah.
2: <laughs> this isn't going
0: to And that death scene, Willem—it's one of the most memorable death scenes in any film ever. Tell me about shooting it. Did did Oliver make it so explicit? He wanted to have your arms up—that Christ figure, which which became the cover of the movie. No,
2: you know he didn't. He didn't tell me anything about that. It was just a practical thing. I'm reaching for the helicopter. Um, I'm playing my actions I'm, I'm running it, it from an actor's point of view. It was a very um, simple scene. I'm running for my life um, and I'm trying to reach the helicopter, a very concrete action to do. And it's just like an athlete that's running a race. You know, there's a very concrete action to do. You think, oh, that's not emotional well watch a guy do uh you know a, a, a sprint in a in a in a pressured situation it's a very emotional thing to watch um because your whole body your whole mind is dedicated to this action uh there's no reflection it's pure nature um so That was a great setup, and then of course it was filmed beautifully, and uh, they laid that uh, Samuel Barber adagio for strings over it, which was a good choice of music for it. Um, So I was that was like a great opportunity, and I was just there to receive it. I'm, I'm not being falsely modest. I'm just saying that it was really, you know, unique. As an actor, you have to be able to fill those opportunities. You have to meet them and run with them (laughs) Uh, no pun intended but really it was a great setup
0: well i think you're right in saying that you really were kind of carrying out oliver's vision and you know when you have a great director my favorite director is martin scorsese when you worked Mm -hmm. with him on last temptation of christ you know you clearly were the vessel for a project that was so incredibly personal to marty and he was facing obviously so much criticism from some people tell me about uh, taking on a role like that
2: well that was a beautiful experience uh you people forget it was a very low budget movie. So we were driven by necessity, but thank God, uh, uh, Marty Scorsese, this was a personal film for him. And it was also a film that he had very, very well realized in his mind. So, uh, he's a master filmmaker. So that was, that was a huge pleasure. Also, it's, it's a movie that required a lot of me. Um, And I think that's when I work best, when I'm um, under the gun, when I have, you know, a a demanding role. That's that's when I feel best.
0: Yeah. In terms of preparation, I'm I'm sure it's a matter of not just the the Kazantakis novel, but maybe seeing other biblical films or actually reading the Bible itself. And Marty himself, of course, is such a a cinephile himself. He must have given you maybe uh, other scenes or movies that he wanted you to channel. Like, what was the research like to play a role like Jesus?
2: Well, the funny thing is you want to sort of forget about Jesus because the whole thing is to uh, play the human part of him. So I wanted to cleanse myself of any expectations or any imagery, really. Um, He did tell me to watch Pasolini's uh, Gospel uh, uh, of uh, Matthew, according to Matthew, or uh, I forget the proper title. Um, I should know it because I played Pasolini, but... um, (laughs) uh, he told me to watch that film. Uh, that's the only instruction he gave me. He gave me some uh, articles about forgiveness. Of course, I read the Bible some, and um, just so I could get the story straight in my head and uh, And it was really about cleansing myself of I, I wanted to start from zero rather than accumulate um images or or, uh, thoughts about it so it was it was kind of more uh uh because he was a he was a passive character a character that's acted on and then he reacts um it was really about placing myself in a way that the story could work on me and it could work through me um so the research was really about about coming into the scenes as clean as i could as simple as I could, and then being um, receptive to them. How
0: physically grueling, like I, I, the ending is it's so beautifully rendered when you see what, you know, Christ obviously uh, resisted, you know, what the whole point of the film is. How physically grueling, the crucifixion scenes, and like you said, the fact that you're, you're under a tight budget and you're trying to just wrench all this emotional uh, performance in, in, in the film, how, how tough was that?
2: It was very physical, um, but that's where I live. That's where I feel happiest uh, when I'm doing physical things. So uh, it was a pleasure. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well I was reading the Hollywood Reporter they have a great roundtable. I encourage everyone to check it out it's an interview not only with Willem but other actors who are generating a, a lot of positive words uh, this holiday season and one of the best parts I liked Willem was they asked each of you your favorite performances and Sam Rockwell right. said anything in the deer hunter you know I, my dad looked a little bit like De Niro he has the mole I love that movie <laughs> James Franco said uh, the De Niro of Mean Streets and Taxi Driver and Raging Bull those three <laughs> movies your choice was Boris Karloff from Frankenstein, tell me why that performance is one that you love.
2: Just because it was it was so theatrical and muscular, but at the same time it was very touching and very human. Uh, so it had this kind of strength, but also a fragility. And uh, it's a beautiful thing to see when you can balance uh, opposites. Uh, At the same time, it's like like holding two contradictory arguments in your head. That's really when you start to um, understand things. So uh, Boris Karloff, uh, you know, I'm sure in the day it was considered quite a... I don't know what it was considered in the day, but when I was a kid, it was like a kid's movie. It was a horror movie. But if you really look at it, it's it's a beautiful performance.
0: It, the two things that I think about with Boris Karloff, one... I love Martin Landau playing Bella Lugosi and Ed Wood, and he's just always angry about Karloff, saying, Well, who could, you know, how easy is it to play about? How tough is that monster? So that's
2: <laughs> that's, the, funny. that's the,
0: and the first thing I think. And the second thing is, of course, um, your performance in Shadow of the Vampire. So I, when yes. I saw the Karloff, I said, Maybe you just had an appreciation for those types of movies, but that was a wonderful performance, too. I hope people recognize how good you were in Shadow of the Vampire, and I hope that was a fruitful experience for you.
2: Oh, it's a beautiful experience. It was really fun because I had such a strong mask, so. Uh sometimes it's beautiful because when you you know, you sit in a makeup chair for three, four hours and you lose yourself and you're totally free. Uh you're you're you become another character. You look in the mirror, you look different, you feel different. It really opens the door to uh a pure pretending. Um and I had a good model because basically I'm starting from a place of imitation. I'm really using uh the Nosferatu film as a base to start from, you can never truly copy, but sometimes that's a pl- good place to start. It's a, it's like what musicians do all the time, you know. You learn the scales and then you depart from them, you know. You learn the song and then you depart from them.
1: Right. Uh, two more
0: movies, and I promise we'll get you out of here. I love uh, two things okay. you did with Paul Schrader: Autofocus and affliction autofocus ah. to me is such an underrated movie owen in the film Greek for variety said that was the first great film about sex addiction and your performance i mean the, the relationship you have as carp or carpy with greg kinnear i just think that's a movie that it was just people don't appreciate how powerful it was just the the throes of addiction that character's in and your character and especially the the, the dilemma that each guy faces when they try to break apart what was autofocus like because i think it was amazing
2: Good. I'm glad you like that movie. It's a good movie. I, you know, I've worked with uh, Paul Strater five, six times, right. um, and I don't think it, I think it's underseen, but I don't think it's underappreciated. You know, some movies just don't get their um, get a, a release, uh, get a, a, a strong release, um, and I think that was one of them. But I think it's a strong movie, and it's uh, something I really enjoyed doing.
0: And another movie that I love, speaking of Paul Schrader, is Affliction. Uh, mm-hmm. everything about that movie, just the way it's shot, and Nick Nolte's performance and your relationship. I think Paul said, he goes, you know, when you watch the movie, maybe I don't, maybe you even said this in an interview, when you watch the movie, you think it's Wade Whitehouse's story, meaning Nick Nolte's character, but when you right. watch it again, it's actually your story. It's Rolf's story. It's the brother of Wade, and especially, right. I love that haunting narration at the end, the last time where you say, except that I continue. I mean, that Lisa yeah. Schwartzbaum had a great review of it. She called it a magnificent feel-bad movie, but I, 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 <laughs>
2: (laughs) I, i love affliction it's you know it comes from a beautiful novel by russell banks um and uh paul paul uh you know paul is very good at dealing with very hot hot emotional and spiritual issues in a very detached aestheticized way and uh this film was no exception um uh, my the the role really is uh, both Colburn uh, Sissy Spacek and also uh, uh Nick Nolte is fantastic in it uh are great performances um I'm kind of in there for support, but I was happy to be there.
0: Well, I love the scene. You know, even there's, of course, there's humor even amid serious subject matter. The scene where you say to Nick, uh, Nolte's character, Wade Whitehouse, I was never afflicted by that man's capacity for violence, speaking of Coburn, yeah. And Nolte gives a big laugh because that's what you
2: think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's good. No, it's beautiful. It's beautiful writing. The novel is great. Um, if, if people respond to that movie, they should check out other novels by uh, Russell Banks, including... Uh, one called Continental Drift that uh, really was very prescient about um, uh, the issue of uh, immigration.
0: The last thing I read from the Hollywood Reporter, William, you said if you weren't an actor, you'd be a cook or a farmer. Where does that (laughs) desire come from?
2: You know, I guess, you know, when you get asked those kinds of questions, you're not giving a lot of deep thought. But I always admire, I I, I like losing myself in practical things. I like washing dishes, I like to cook, I like to work in, when I had a vegetable garden, it was very satisfying. So I don't really think about doing those things and I'm sure I have a very romantic view of them. But um, a, a life where you're connected to nature and you're connected to making things in a practical way This is very appealing to me. And in fact, as an actor, that's what I try to do.
0: Willem Dafoe, the film is the Florida Project. He's outstanding in it, as is the movie. Thanks so much for the time, Willem. I really appreciate it.
2: All right. Thank you. Good talking to you.
0: All right. So that was Willem Dafoe. Obviously a terrific actor. So great to have him here. And like I said... Uh, he is going to be probably winning the Oscar for supporting actor for the Florida Project. Either he, he or Sam Rockwell. Well, Once again, if you go to Gold Derby, you'll see the latest picks. A couple more movies here for you before we get to our second guest, Richard Jenkins, who is excellent in The Shape of Water. The first one is one that a lot of people have been tweeting me about. Uh, Mark Simon recommended it to me. My buddy Adam Amin mentioned it to me. So, of course, I had to watch Jim and Andy. And on paper, this is a movie that I would really enjoy because it's about Jim Carrey, who's one of my favorite comedians, fellow Canadian. And it's about the behind-the-scenes of a movie, which is kind of a great material for someone like me. And it's about when he played Andy Kaufman in Man on the Moon and all the behind-the-scenes footage, which has never been released before. So I'm thinking, this is going to be a home run for me. And early on, I like it. I like the style of it. It's a documentary, which is focusing on Jim going back and telling the story when he became Andy Kaufman. And again, either you're going to go with this or you're not going to. Either you're a true thespian and you believe in art and you believe in, in transcending oneself and becoming another person, because Jim Carrey makes it clear, I was not Jim. Jim was gone. I was Andy Kaufman. I channeled him. I was him from the outside in, from the inside out. Uh, So I don't necessarily remember certain things. Like, I I was playing Andy all the way. And when Andy has to play, like, other characters, like his boorish alter ego, then again, Jim would assume that responsibility. So what works is especially the opening, because you see him actually on set, and and there's scenes where Milos Foreman, the director, um, of course, Amadeus among other films, is trying to ask him to do another take. He's like Jim, take. He's like, "Oh, I'm not, I'm not Jim." I'm like, no, no, okay, okay, Andy, Andy, can we just do the take? And he's like, "No, no, no." He's so. like, "Oh, thank you very much." Like, he's doing the whole taxi bit, and you're like, "Okay, he's being difficult because Andy was difficult on the set of Taxi, and in life, Andy was difficult, and whenever Andy just felt like pushing buttons, he would do this. So, on the one hand, I can imagine Milos Forman's frustration, saying, "All right, I'm trying to make a movie about this guy." And I get that you're acting you're in the frame of it, but how do I get through to Jim to say, do that again, just try it a little bit differently? Instead I'm talking to Andy and I'm asking Andy to reenact a part of his life differently. Like how 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 the hell do I do this? So I really felt a lot for the challenge of him, Milo form the director, not to mention the other actors. Not nearly enough Giamatti. There's only like one shot of Giamatti, he turns the camera and like, This is crazy, this is freaky. Because Jim's not Jim, because Jim is now Andy Coffin. And um, you know, Giamatti plays his right-hand man in the movie, if you haven't seen Man on the Moon. So you've got, like, Andy Dick in there, Danny DeVito. Of course, DeVito knew Andy Kaufman very well, so you see scenes of Carrie, and he's busting on DeVito, and then DeVito's telling the cameraman, going like, yeah, no, that's exactly what Andy was like. It would just, it would just be difficult On the set of Taxi. But after a while, the movie really becomes repetitive, and I started to just get frustrated, and I said, okay, what is the point of this? What really is the point of this documentary from director Chris Smith? Because, I, I mean... I I get the fact that he's difficult. And I get the fact it's interesting that you have this footage. But after a while, it becomes repetitive. So Jim Carrey, years ago, acted like a jerk when he was playing Andy Kaufman in Man on the Moon because that's what the actor did. Okay, what else is there to the movie? It's 94 minutes. And it's got that tongue-in-cheek humor evidenced by the title, Jim and Andy the Great Beyond featuring a very special contractually obligated mention of Tony Clifton. By the way, when he plays Tony Clifton, it's unbelievable because Tony Clifton was a very difficult guy. He's like, okay, all right, now I'm going to be Tony Clifton. All right, okay. So, I mean, one of the best scenes of the movie is Milos Forman talking to Tony Clifton, going, Tony, you can't do this. Tony Clifton's like, throw us around. Okay, I'll do whatever I want. Okay, all right, that's fine then. Okay, all right, Tony's coming back. He's going, Tony, can you just please do this? No, okay, I don't feel like that. Like, honestly, now with, the, with all the focus and the rightful scrutiny and sexual harassment, like, I was thinking about this guy, Tony Clifton, the way his alter ego was. I'm sure he's grabbing women inappropriately, definitely making inappropriate jokes, obviously acting in a very abusive manner. So I wonder, like again, if you're a foreman, if you're the other actors, at what point do you say, okay, I get the fact Jim Carrey's a method actor, but at one point, is this just a license to be a jerk? At what point is Jim Carrey just acting like a jerk? And you can say, all right, I get that you're channeling Andy Kaufman, but this is now a pain because we're trying to get the shot right, we've had it lit this way, we've got 20 minutes to get this, and you're just acting like a jerk. So be a professional and just do the job, and you can do it without having to somehow get in the presence of Andy Kaufman. So like I said, I, the, the drawback to me, the reason I'm only giving it two Maple Leafs is it just, very gets, it just gets too repetitive. Like, I got it. Jim Carrey's acting like a jerk. Let's move on. Uh, but that's not to say the footage isn't interesting. And the, the scenes that I like the most is when it kind of focuses on Jim. Because maybe you're 18, 19, listening to this podcast, you, you weren't alive for those movies in the 90s. But Jim Carrey was as big as it got. Like, he was a megastar. Like, his comedies were must-see television. And now, if you wonder what's happened to Jim Carrey, like, now... People often wonder, like his girlfriend passed away. Like I guess they broke it up prior to her suicide, but he was being sued. If you saw him in comedians in cars getting coffee with Seinfeld, like he was cool, but he seems he like very mellow now and very serious and very quiet. And you know, uh, he's just focused on his painting. Doesn't appear to be interested in acting. He did I Love You, Philip Morris. Which I didn't see but it was a small film, uh, so it's like now he's kind of in, he's a very artistic guy. But if you wonder what happened to madcap, zany, fun Jim Carrey, now he's very serious, uh, very introverted Jim Carrey. If you had to guess, how old do you think Jim Carrey is? 53. Older. 55. Yeah, see, I remember when I heard he was a a grandfather. I'm like, oh, my God. I think it was at 50, but he used to think 55, and you go, man, he looks great. The funniest line, my buddy Mike Glennon, uh, who was a part of the strong contingent. Bears quarterback? No, no. uh, The part of the strong contingent at uh, LeMoyne College, he said to me... Because at one point, I just realized, like, Jim Carrey's just lost it. Like, Jim Jim Carrey has now left our universe. Spoiler alert, the final line of it, like, he recaps the whole story of playing in the coffin, and he looks at the camera. This actually makes the documentary worth seeing, just for this line alone. Jim Carrey looks at the camera and goes, what if I just came back as Jesus? And I'm like, okay, at that point, yeah, Jim Carrey is officially off his rocker. Jim and Andy and the Great Beyond is currently on Netflix. You can check out that documentary there. One more film to talk about before we get to uh, the new film, excuse me, the interview with Richard Jenkins from The Shape of Water, and that's a new film from Aaron Sorkin, Molly's Game, which stars Jessica Chastain. It's the true story, uh, based on the true story, I should say, of Molly Bloom, who ran these high-stakes poker rings, did so for years, and it involved actors. You don't mention them in the movie. But Ben Affleck was a part of it. Leonardo DiCaprio was a part of it. They've got Michael Cera in the movie. So Cera, I don't know if he's just playing himself or he's just supposed to play by proxy, one of these Hollywood actors. But initially she was working with these actors and such. And then later it became Italian gangsters. And then it became Russian mafia and ended up going into a different world. And she goes from a girl who's just this, this assistant making 300 bucks a night in tips in these poker games to eventually running these illegal gambling rings on her own. And the backstory to it is interesting. She was actually a Olympic skier. First five minutes is great, because the first question is this. Aaron Sorkin's an unbelievable writer, one of the best writers alive. Every time he puts in a great script, it's fun dialogue, it's great to listen to, won an Oscar for The Social Network, um, and I have loved Steve Jobs. I thought it was a great film. Obviously, West Wing, all the rest of it, American President. So I'm like, how is he going to do as a director? And it's like, well, you know the first five minutes immediately quell any anxiety because he just shows this character of Molly when she's skiing. And so immediately he's got some, you know, very visceral quick cuts of her skiing and the moguls. And Kevin Costner plays her father, who is uh, this difficult, you know, demanding coach, as many would expect in that vein. And for the first five and a half minutes, it's a great prologue. All right, now I'm into the movie. Like Sorkin does an excellent job from there. But I just found it curious that this was the movie he chose to make as his directorial debut He's fifty-six years old. He could have his pick of the litter when it comes to projects. His his next project. He's working on a few good men, like a live TV adaptation for NBC with Alec Baldwin playing Colonel Nathan Jessup. Um, you know, he's he loves to play more than anything. He wishes he could. Who's just go playing Cruz? I don't know. It's just they've only announced Baldwin so far. They, they pushed it back for a year. But like you know, Aaron Sorkin to do anything. I just thought like, people have asked. What about a West Wing reboot with with Trump in power? he's like, well, I have thought about it because it, you know, it's obviously ripe material. But I, I guess there's challenges as to what he would do with all the characters he's said. But I just find it interesting. As someone said to me, Aaron is going to direct a movie at the age of 56. I'm like, oh, okay, probably politically oriented or the newsroom or dialogue. No, it's with this female poker player who got busted for a gambling ring. I'm like, oh, okay. A peculiar decision. And, and it's a good movie, but it's certainly not a great movie. And it's interesting they're putting it now with all this awards bait where I think it, it kind of is going to get lost in the shuffle. Originally they had told Sorkin they were going to put it out in February, and he said no way. Like He knows his movies and his audiences for critically acclaimed uh, like-minded people. So he's got to get an Oscar nomination for script, he's got to get Chastain a nomination, and then people will check it out. Who, the, As he said, who the hell wants to have their movie open up in February? But now I think it's got a Christmas Day release, and like I said, I got the screener, and thanks to the fine folks who sent it to me. Uh, but I think it's a good film, but I don't think it's spectacular. Chastain's excellent, she's always been a terrific actress, and once again, it's a very good role for her. I mean, basically, she just puts on a lot of makeup and puts on her tight cocktail dresses and starts seducing all these rich men. Uh, so it's a, a different term for her. Idris Elba plays the lawyer who tries to support her. I, I, I think he it's kind of a smaller role for him. I, thought, I actually thought it was a little underwritten. One of the criticisms of Sorkin is that his female characters need to have men who kind of free them or liberate them or find their standing. I actually thought in this film the character of Molly is really well written and well uh, played by Chastain. I thought Elba's character came across a little bit half-baked. And even the structure of it, he's telling Molly's story when she's running the gambling ring, but then also flipping to present day in his structure when um, you know she's going to court and has to fight the case. So I did like the ending; it was a surprise ending. And Sorkin's always a smart guy, but I thought it was solid, but not a list Aaron Sorkin type material. His dialogue is always fun to listen to, so I think he may get a nomination for screenplay. Chastain right now in Gold Derby, just on the outside looking in for nominations. nomination. She's running six out of five. But if you like Aaron Sorkin, if you like poker, I should say that. Hell, if you love poker, you'll love this movie. I'm not a gambler. I'm not a poker player. So uh, they have this one sequence that's very innovative in which they start explaining you know, the nut flush and all the different expressions and such. Um, I'm sure if you love the movie Rounders, then you'll love a movie like Molly's Game. So I'm giving it three Maple Leafs because of Sorkin's script and because of the performances. That film coming to theaters soon. And now it's time to hear from Richard Jenkins. (laughs) Richard Jenkins has long been a talented character actor. And then he got a starring role, which really put him on the map and gave him an Academy Award nomination for Best Actor for The Visitor. Now he's getting a lot of pub for a supporting actor Oscar nomination, perhaps for his work in The Shape of Water, a terrific new film from Guillermo del Toro. Richard, what was your reaction when you first heard about
1: this project? I just had no idea what it was going to be. And um, uh, I sat down and started to read the script, and um, I loved this part so much that every time I would turn the page, I would say, please don't die, please don't die. And um, that's how you know you love something. So I sent an email the next day and said, I think I do love this as much as you do. And that's how the whole thing began.
0: Guillermo del Toro has said that he cast his movies with the way that he looks at a person's eyes. If you look at Octavia Spencer's eyes or Sally Hawkins' eyes or Michael Sheen, that helps him see the character. And in your case, you know, your character is very compassionate. You're the one who the audience can identify with, this dilemma you have trying to help this woman in this really dangerous adventure. How did you approach this role, perhaps differently than other ones?
1: Well, i just kind of the You see what's on the page, what's written, and um, who this person is that then it's in this story and the, the fact is he's not very compassionate in the beginning he has his own life which i love he has his own problems his own dreams desires and when she asks when Stanley hawkins asked me to help her i say no i, I you know why do you do this on today of all days when i'm gonna get my job back and things are happening for me you want me to do this and until no, until his whole world falls apart and then he realizes who his one true friend is, it's her, does he come around and say, I'll do whatever you want me to do. So I love the fact that this guy actually had an arc, a character arc, that he, he starts out one thing and ends up another thing. So it was, um, it was great fun to do.
0: You know, every character in this story, Richard, is an outsider. You're this gay man. You know, you've got that great line about you're the proverbial starving artist. Octavia Spencer is a black woman in the early 1960s. And then Sally is this mute woman. So all of you are outsiders. All of you are not, you know, received well within the conventions of society. And I love that one scene where Sally's watching television, and she puts on like a civil rights demonstration, and right away your character comes over and says, "No, change the channel. I don't want to see that. Like your character just wants to focus on old Hollywood musicals and, and eat pie with her and and not force that reality. Is that what you took from that scene
1: specifically? Uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely that that he's He's trying to create the world he's going to live in, and he's trying to to uh, he's trying to push away any unpleasantness even though his world is filled with it. Um, and I think that's part of the change of seeing him um, when he's willing to, to to finally man up and do do the right thing and help her. It's a big leap for this guy.
0: I said earlier, Richard, in my review of the film, that Guillermo del Toro is really audacious in the way he puts this picture together. You know, it's Beauty and the Beast, it's modern retelling. And I love that scene because it really is a movie for movie lovers, that scene where... The Creature and Sally, you know, they, they are in their own musical, and it's one of those scenes where either it's going to work for the audience and it doesn't, but for me, I thought it was beautiful, and it really kind of captured the spirit of the film. How did you take that?
1: You well, know, it's true, because I think he worried about it, you know. He worried about it. He said, will they buy this? Will they go with this? And, um, you know, that's, I said, no, won't." No, no. That's because you're making a piece of art here, you know, and uh, it's a risk. So, you know, I love the fact you're taking a lot of risks with this. and But it's incredible, you know, what audiences accept and understand in this film. Um, I know he's really thrilled by that. And uh, it's pretty, pretty great. But it, it is, it was a risk, you know. How do you make this work? And if you try to explain this movie to someone, um, you go, oh, a woman falls in love with a fish man.
0: And and that's the thing that I love about this movie is it takes a lot of chances. Like, how tough was this to pitch? Like, what, Creature from the Black Lagoon? Who's
1: going to see this when you're pitching it to executives? I don't think anybody, I've not heard a great pitch for this movie. I've not heard a description of this movie. I go, ah, that's it. I I just haven't heard it. It's so difficult to, to categorize. And I think that's what makes it really interesting.
0: Richard Jenkins currently starring in the new film from Guillermo del Toro, *The Shape of Water*. As I mentioned off the top, Richard, I just love that film, *The Visitor*, and your starring performance in it. You were nominated for Best Actor, and a very worthy nomination. You know, it, you talk about gutsy movies. That story—you're this professor who's awfully repressed, and then uh, you have a family <laughs> living in your apartment, and the story then becomes about immigration and falling in love late in life and you're playing the drums. And I mean, I was so happy when Tom McCarthy won an Oscar for spotlight because I thought McCarthy has been making excellent movies for years, not only win-win with Paul Giamatti, but the visitor with yourself. Tell me about that experience and just how transformative it was.
1: Well, it was um, one of those things where you just can't believe you it's, it's happening. It was an extraordinary time and Tom McCarthy you know, trusted me enough to offer me this part. And um, I'll be forever beholden to him because it was uh, it was a beautiful experience. And uh, he called me up one day and he said, uh, I wrote this part for you and tell me if you want to do it or not. And so I read the script and I called him back and I said, I don't think anybody's going to give you the money to do this with me in this part. And he said that wasn't my question. My question is, do you want to do it? You let me worry about the money. And that's how it began. You know, I mean, it was uh, it was an, it was extraordinary. It, you know, it just came out of the blue. It must be nice
0: to have somebody who believes in you. I thought your performance was tremendous from start to finish. But the scene in particular, I really loved, is at the end when you're confronting. Uh, you know, the immigration services, and you're just so frustrated and you're doing that thing with the your fingers. Like, can you even hear me? Just tell me about that scene. What was that like for you?
1: Well, it was interesting because it was kind of at the end of the shoot we did that scene, so it was frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you did feel that. You felt that kind of institutionalized frustration. You know, it's like you can't, nobody will tell you anything. That's because they don't know. Nobody tells to them anything. It's really frustrating when someone you really care about is at the other end of it. So it wasn't hard, but it's so ineffectual, my, my kind of ranting there. It's just not going to get anybody anywhere. So it was, it was interesting to do. Um, you feel like nobody is healing you. It was an amazing project to do. We rehearsed it for three weeks. And oh, but he was, Tom's a smart dude. And we kind of used that rehearsal period for um, the cast to become friends. So we had breakfast, lunch, dinner together for three weeks and, um, hung out last. And, you know, it was really a great time. So by the time we began the movie, we all knew each other and, um, we didn't have to address a whole was in a movie. We don't know anybody on the movie and we kind of wish you could go back and reshoot some of the stuff at, at the end of the movie. He said, yes, I am. Um, but he, he, he took care of that problem with the rehearsal period. So. I was really grateful for that.
0: I don't know if you're musically inclined, but how proficient were you by the end of playing the drums?
1: Ah, I, well, I sucked, I sucked. But, you know, I was a drummer when I was a young guy. I played drums for five years, and I was never any good. You know, if you're a drummer and you're worried about, you should be doing something else. And that's probably that my deal with it. But it was enough. I could do it enough so I had a little speed in my hands. I could... I could kind of go fast, but I couldn't play anything. uh, (laughs) And interesting because my son ended up, my son was a drummer and he was a fantastic drummer, but I just never had it in me.
0: We had Billy Bob Thornton on the podcast, and, of course, we love him. He's such a talented actor and a great guy. And I told him my favorite film of his is actually The Man Who Wasn't There. And to my surprise, he said that's actually his favorite as an actor as well. And you have a small but I think a very memorable role playing Scarlett Johansson's father in the movie. And I, and I love that scene on the porch where your character is just completely blitzed, and you're, you're trying to give him advice about the legal process, and you're saying, yeah, Reed and Schneider, the best. What was, what was that movie like?
1: <clears> this <throat> well, was the first Coen Brothers movie I did, and I'd done three with them. And I, I just love these guys; they're just the, the best. But it wasn't written that he was drunk that night. But every scene that I did in the script, it said that he had a, a glass of booze with him, whether it was in the library. Or, I mean, I think I had three scenes, or four, and then, but every scene he had a drink in his hand. So I thought, well, this is late at night. If he's been doing this all day. <laughs> be in too good, good a shape, so that's what we did, <laughs> and it was fun, yeah, it
0: worked. The Coen brothers are so unique, I could just imagine as an actor, it's like just diving into red meat like you're just so thrilled to be a part of this process because they're giving you such great material to work with, right
1: well, they are they're you know, and they're fast, they're fast because they're they have confidence in what they do, and uh they write so well, and it's just a great atmosphere on a a Cohen set. They're just great guys, and um, they love making films, and they're great at it. (laughs) So so for me, it was because I had auditioned for them for – I started – my first one was in Raising Arizona, and I auditioned for for Fargo, and I came back for the Bill Macy part. I think I auditioned two or three times, and I didn't get it, and and I was like, upset. And then I went to the movie, and I saw Bill Macy do it. And I thought, oh, okay, I get it now. I I wouldn't cast me either, you know, uh, because he was so fantastic in it. So uh, I never thought I'd end up being in one of their films. And uh, all of a sudden, they called me up and said, we want you to do this. So it was great.
0: An actor like yourself, Richard, you've worked for so many years, and you've worked in so many different genres. I don't want to... Uh, dismiss your work in comedies. You know, you were in Step Brothers, you're in Me, Myself, and Irene, you're in There's Something About Mary. What was it like working with the Farley brothers in the latter two films?
1: Um, well, I like the cool ones. There's two of them. It's fun. It's, you know, Peter and Bobby are just, you know, really smart guys and a lot of fun. And uh, if your job in life is to be in movies or make movies and you're not having fun, you're doing something wrong, this should not be a chore to do this job. And these guys understand that, and they know that um, it's a privilege to do this. So, uh, you know, it's a ball working with it.
0: It's always a privilege to see you on the screen. I have often said whenever Richard Jenkins is in a film, he enhances the overall project, and that is certainly true of your latest film, Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water. I hope you get another Oscar nomination this time for supporting, and I thank you so much for the time, Richard. I really appreciate
1: it. Oh, I really appreciate that. Thanks Thanks for the kind words, man. Streaming suggestions.
0: since we reviewed previously in the pod Jim and Andy from Jim Carrey how about Ace Venture a pet detective on Netflix I remember the scorching Siskel and Ebert gave this movie and they said it was epitomized by the scene in which Carrey talks out of his butt which I mean if you're like 14 years old that's a reason to go see a movie you're like wait I, <laughs> there's a grown man who talks out of his butt and then asks for a mint to tone Loke I'm like I'm in uh, of course, that was a huge hit. If you've never seen it, you have no idea what you're getting into. All righty, then. There's a lot to like about Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, even though it got quite a pounding uh, from Siskel niebuhr. That is currently on Netflix if you want to revisit Jim Carrey uh, in the role that really kind of made him a huge star after In Living Color. On Hulu, so last time we had our buddy Bonds do a guest review. I'd like somebody to do a guest review of the following film, which I have not seen. I have no interest in seeing it. <laughs> but I want someone to review it for me. It's Basic Instinct 2 Risk Addiction. So if you can send in a tweet, we now have 280 characters, so go ahead. Send in your tweet to Cinephile ESPN, and then uh, Dan and I will monitor the best one. If anybody actually wants to watch what was probably just an awful movie, but write us a very entertaining Twitter review, I'll read it next time. It's currently on Hulu. Buffalo 66 from Vincent Gallo. What happened to Vincent Gallo? He makes this movie called Buffalo 66. It's about this romance, and he, he's this drifter, and Christina Ricci. He's got this great scene with Ben Gazzara, which he's uh, singing this song to her. And Gallo made this movie, which was, you know, really played well in the indie circuit, and people really appreciated the film. And by the way, Buffalo 66, there's a sports tie-in to it. He's a huge Buffalo Bills fan, and it goes back to what the kicker did in 1966. There's definitely shades of Scott Norwood in the storytelling of it. But Gallo does this movie, which is really well-received. Then he makes a movie called The Brown Bunny. Roger Ebert said the Brown Bunny was the worst film in the history of the Cannes Film Festival, and and Vincent Gallo was so understandably upset, he just unleashed this like verbal tirade against Roger Ebert. And Ebert's response one of the all time classics from any critic. He said, because the big thing Gallo criticized his weight, kept calling him fat and all these different you know synonyms for fat. And Ebert said, my weight may fluctuate, but Vincent Gallo will always be the director of the Brown Bunny. Case closed. Lousiest movie ever. Apparently it's famous for like this scene of fellatio. Like the, I've never seen the brown bunny, but people tell me it's just gone awful. Chloe Seventy is a co-star in that. The other film currently on Hulu I want people to check out. It's called In the Line of Fire. John Malkovich, one of his best roles. Academy Award nominated playing the villain who wants to kill the president. Clint Eastwood stars on this film directed by uh, Wolfgang Peterson. I uh, love the chemistry between the entire cast. Not only Eastwood and Malkovich, but also Eastwood and Rene Russo. Uh, this one scene I never forget. He says, "You know, when a girl's walking away from you, if she looks back, that means she's interested." And it's a really good script. Uh, Jeff McGuire, I believe, wrote the script. I think he was nominated actually for screenplay that year for original screenplay. But I like those moments with Russo and of course Malkovich and, and Eastwood. They've got Eastwood's got all these different frustrations, and I just remember when the like a cauldron when it finally bubbles over. And he finally gets angry at Malkovich. They've got this great scene on the phone, and they're just screaming at each other. But if you like a good political thriller, I recommend In the Line of Fire. That's currently on Hulu. Lastly, HBO Now, just to continue the Clint Eastwood theme, check out Gran Torino. I only saw it once. I liked it. I, I feel like it's topical now because it's this character who's this like repugnant racist who ends up, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily finding his calling, but I think he has an about face in some of his views while still being this crotchety old guy. It's also memorable for the fact Clint Eastwood sings. I just remember watching the film, and I did like the movie, but like the final five minutes, he starts singing, and you go, geez, I'm not sure about that musical choice. Midnight Cowboy, Dustin Hoffman in the news, because John Oliver went after him about the groping allegations uh, based when Hoffman did death of a salesman. If you want to just focus on Dustin Hoffman's movies rather than his behavior, check out Midnight Cowboy. And I'm walking here. And Species, I only mentioned that, starring Canadian starlet Natasha Henstridge, because if you like The Shape of Water and you like a good monster movie, you'll like Species. Good B-movie, entertaining and she's obviously very attractive. Check out Species on HBO Now. Rick Passport, I knew it. I knew password have something on Species. Go ahead. No, I don't have anything on Species. I'm oh. surprised you're not plugging Silence on Hulu and Amazon. <laughs> yeah, I, f- I feel like I've badgered our audience into just so much silence conversation. At this point, I'm even disgusted when I bring up silence. So you did send that to me. I said I will spare the audience. But now we have another silence mention. Thanks to you, Ricky. Hey, if you're not going to do it, I was. (laughs) I appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to Cinephile. Obviously, this is a great time for movies. We'll be back at it shortly. So thanks once again to checking out Cinephile. Tell all your friends about it. Subscribe. Do all the rest of it. Uh, And we'll, of course, leave a uh, message on Apple iTunes. Although people have been often asking me now where to find the podcast. Of course, TuneIn is the podcast. to Check it out exclusively there. Then you'll get on iTunes and the ESPN app. But leave us a review on iTunes. I rank the movies at a 4 police. You can do it out of five stars and leave a comment for us as well. Until next time, I'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Verk movie podcast by clicking the
1: Listen tab in the ESPN app.
4: Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in.